why does it take a toll on you emotionally uh the first rohit is i think you're alone i mean you can't share your fears your anxieties um certainly with the camp um i'm just joking but i think you can't share it with your investors uh you can't share it with even your top team in many ways right because you know you a lot of the startup is about creating i mean it's about impossible odds i mean if you look at any stats it's impossible odds right and therefore it's very lonely and that builds up in terms of stress right you don't have somebody to talk to uh you don't have somebody that you can actually really what do you do about that uh, i by the way talk to sandeep i talk to my wife and i think that it becomes uh much easier because i mean it's one of those people i have full trust and i can actually have the conversation and i think you need just a non-judgmental listener you don't really need anybody to solve your problems and right? someone who will also call out bullshit when and someone it. who calls out bullshit so i think that really helps i think so that's one reason i think for the stress i think the second which i think is partly media driven and partly your own is the need to sort of appear successful all the time and i think it's complete bullshit right i mean the reality is there's not a single founder that i met instantly i met 752 founders in the last 60 i keep count and like have notes about that. not one not one has gone through only good times right but yet if you go look at social media posts you look at any of our posts including mine probably right you only see the positives you don't see the negatives because you don't want to portray it i think these are the two things that i think add up to stress and i think i've become better at it now in the last in mensa because i I think going through a couple of cycles really really help. Hey there, I'm Parth Trivedi, the head of audio here at the Gap. Thanks for tuning into this episode of First Principles. Now we'll get to the conversation between Rohin and Anant in just a bit, but before we do, there was a little something special that I wanted to do for all of you. First, some context. For those of you who haven't heard of Anant or his company Mensa Brands before, it's a brand aggregator. They scout for and buy controlling stakes in small but promising consumer brands and then scale them by using their expertise in multi-channel e-commerce. This involves brand building, technology, product innovation and much more. But through the force of will and being at the right place at the right time, Mensa became India's fastest unicorn, crossing the 1 billion dollar valuation mark in just 6 months. Now back in June of 2021 we at the Ken did a story on how companies like Mensa Brands and Evenflow are trying their best to buy consumer brands and scale them but are facing friction from founders unwilling to sell either too soon or to someone so new More than a year has passed since then today as Rohin Dharmakumar the co-founder and CEO of the Ken sits down with Anand Narayanan the founder and CEO of Mensa who by the way also used to be the CEO of Mintra I thought our story made for a healthy read alongside this episode. So for you and just for you listeners, I have linked the free story within the show notes. It remains free for 1 week from the day of launch of this podcast and then goes back behind a paywall. And while you read the story, I have one little favor to ask. If you could follow First Principles on Apple Podcasts and hit that little bell icon on Spotify, this would send out bright shiny signals to the algorithm lords telling them that this show is good and that you like it, which I know you do. And just in case you have 10 extra seconds, rate us. It'll barely take a moment but it'll mean the world to us. All right. That's enough from me. Let's dive right into the podcast.
Anand, you've got three kids, and all three of them are spies for you, which you just admitted to while we were chatting up before recording this. Do you want to tell us more about why that is so? Absolutely. Um, it has something to do with actually not just. Sorry, latest. what are their names? So the names are Nainthara, Shreya, and Arya. I have three daughters. They're seventeen, fourteen, and eleven. Um, you know, the startup life is hard. You work a lot. So my belief is, you know, get them in and get them involved. um and that way they know what you're going through and it's easier for everybody and they learn something so what they do for me is they actually go their instagram feeds so they go and identify brands that eventually potentially means i could invest in it's a great way for them to know a little bit about what we do not all of what we do but it's a good way to get the family involved and that's why i do it and i think they have fun doing it you also said that you set up an incentive structure uh, for them I have I be, I'm a big believer in incentives so every time by the way they have a brand that they've identified that we eventually invest or buy um I give them $100 they haven't earned any money yet but I think they're still trying and I think the trying is the important part have they submitted candidates I, absolutely absolutely and we have actually talked to many of them oh great so I mean and they do it religiously every month I get a list from them every month It's been 16 months since we started Mensa and I think I must have got it for 8 months. That's some parenting into entrepreneurship tip right <laughs> at the open Anand. And on that note, do you want to tell us what Mensa Brands is? Sure. Uh so Mensa Brands is a global tech-led house of brands. So what are we trying to do? We're trying to build a digital Unilever or a digital PNG or a digital Inditex. And what's different is Sorry Anand, yeah. I'm 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 going to stop you right here sure. and I'm going to ask you for an answer yeah. which my mom can understand. Sure. What does Mensa brands Very do? Very simple. So we grow brands using these two things that I told you about which is we distribute online now a little bit offline and then we build brands digitally online. So that's those are the two things that we do. But I'll tell you a bit about what else actually the model is. In India today in fashion beauty and home which are the spaces that we are in there are north of 4000 brands which are between 10 and 100 crores in revenue right um it's very easy to start a brand online you need two people and a laptop and a little bit of sourcing and access to amazon or flipkart or mintra or whatever and you start to do this but it's very hard to scale a brand why is it hard to scale a brand because what got you to 30 40 crores in revenue is not going to get you to 400 crores in revenue or 800 crores in revenue you need different talent you need different tech systems you need different operating systems So if you take the two things that I told you one there's a very different way of brand building and second there is a set of subscale brands in India that need to scale and third India is an unbranded market therefore by definition you need to have large brands that come in 4 5 10 years right uh incidentally here's another factoid there are less than 30 brands in fashion beauty and home that are north of 1000 crores in revenue for a for a country the size of India it's very small right you're an ex consultant so how would you compare that with other it must be economies? 100th by the so, way of the us for example i mean so so there's like no comparison i mean we're no, usually us is also a much larger market china you can take any of the markets right so is it anything, concentration is it concentration of large brands that you're referring to yes we have a very few large brands in india and i think we should have many more large brands in india so again so just if, to if simplify Yeah. Explain that in my words. I mean, if I'm mentally picturing this, there yeah. is there is this field of like you know lots of small um, 
perhaps not even medium sized brands across the country correct you're saying it should not be this diverse yes it should be much more concentrated there should be predators there should be tigers and lions there should be elephants and uh, we are going to like those are your words my <laughs> words will be different <laughs> right. uh, my words i think would be i think there is an opportunity to build large at scale brands and the reason for large at scale brands is you can mm. invest in branding you can invest in quality you can invest in a whole bunch of things that you can't do if you are very small right so if you put these together right there's a different way of brand building it's a large small it's a large market but very fragmented with small brands and to scale brands you need very different skills what mensa does is put those two together what do we do we invest and partner with small brands we buy them actually between 10 and 100 crores and then we actually help scale them and grow them right uh in the spaces of fashion beauty and home right these are the three spaces that we are focused on and why these three spaces it's a large market um it's also by the way a market where it's easier to build brands you know harder to build brands if you think about i don't know mobile accessories or you know stationery right i mean it's possible to do but it's harder to build but in fashion in beauty and home people look for brands right because the brands mean something when you look for these are not utilitarian categories so i'll give you i mean it, this is a little bit from my mintra days right one of my insights is fashion is a browse category not a search category what do i mean by that if you go to any of the horizontal platforms typically you know what you want you search for that item you get it and it's an efficient checkout nobody needs that extra shirt or the extra dress or so fashion is an impulse category right so you browse you look at images right and therefore it's it's more inspiration driven as opposed to a very utilitarian category therefore fashion beauty and home you build brands brands have meaning they have freshness they have new styles that come over therefore customers make impulse purchases therefore it's easier to do brand building in some of these categories than many others right so just to summarize and i think in three so first large market mostly unbranded second different opportunity and way to build brands now than 20 years ago third a lot of subscale brands in india which could do with capital talent and operating process that mensa brings to really scale them so we bring these two together and therefore we're building out a great set of brands for india and i think potentially over time many of these brands can go global it's interesting that you should say that because for the longest time the monica that you folks were known uh, by as was the thrasio of india which thrasio being considered as the pioneers of this model in the us and they even launched in india and apparently now i hear that they are reconsidering those plans but anyway let's just kind of go so back i would to love it. to be known as the mensa from india for the world <laughs> uh i think you know we are actually building something quite special and i think quite differentiated um i think aggregation exists in many spaces aggregation Sorry, exists i'm going to hold you to that yeah what would be the difference between a thrasio operating in india yeah and a mensa operating in the us yeah. how would they be different you yeah. said you would love to be the mensa of india how would yeah, it yeah, be yeah. different no no i think first is choice of categories so um by definition if you choose fashion or beauty the sku's don't remain the same year on year on year so you don't have an amazon algorithmic advantage of saying here's the sku the same sku sort of has lots of reviews and therefore i can do it right so you're actually building a brand you're not just optimizing for growth of a few sku's on a horizontal platform that's one big difference 
The second big difference is India is always going to be a multi-platform market. You'll always have Amazon, Flipkart, Mintra, Nika, AGO, Misho Now, many others, right? So I think there will always be multiple platforms and therefore it's more complicated in India than I think in the US where it's primarily an Amazon market. Which, which is how the model originally was. It was... Yes. It essentially evolved from the fact that, hey, if most of the sales are happening on Amazon, right. why don't we just focus on Correct. what we do on Amazon and do that more efficiently? Yeah, interestingly, by the way, Rowan, I actually learned of Thrasio after I started, not before. So I wasn't trying to build a Thrasio of anything, right? I was trying to sort of say, uh, if I go back again to my e-commerce days, whether it's Mintra or Medlife, I felt like the most profitable part of e-commerce. And we've had this conversation before. I do believe eventually businesses need to make money. Um, so my belief you is... You don't say. Sorry, yeah. Well, actually, I'm <laughs> now living it. Um, but the but the reality is, I think it's important to sort of focus, therefore, on private brands and brand building. That's where the original idea came from. I think the question was, if you could make it platform agnostic, which is not Mintra-specific or AGO-specific or Flipkart-specific, could you then sort of build real brands out online? I think that's where the idea originated from, right? So it's quite different in many ways. Uh, right. than what we're doing now. So those are the two differences in my mind, I think, big ones. And the third is we genuinely invest in brand building. So if you take any of our brands, I have a brand called Villain, which actually has Yash as its fragrance brand. It's very cool. I think it has Yash and many others uh, who are, we're really investing in brand building, right? I mean, we have Yash, we have Hardik Pandya as the two brand ambassadors. And we're, you wouldn't do that if you're just selling a fragrance and optimizing because it's much easier to just sort of do performance marketing and move it up the chain. But we are wanting to build this out as a real brand and therefore we're investing in brand building. All right. Just so people are clear, the category that you operate in is largely known as the e-commerce roll-up category. Would I that think be, the category that I am wanting how would you to define be, it? I would define it as how do you build digital first brands in India? I think it's a category of its own. Um, and and I say this in all humility, right? I think there is, look, I mean... But how does that differentiate no, you from a D2C like brand, a standalone D2C uh, brand? The only difference in my mind between a standalone D2C brand and us is I think, one, the portfolio has some benefits because by definition, uh, technology can be across, operations can be across. Which is across, essentially the roll-up element, right? Which is, like, part, you know, the, which is yeah. part of the roll-up element. But I would say Unilever is a roll-up play. Absolutely. I right. mean, I definitely right. want to get into that. Yeah, so as we go along this one. I think any of these, right? PNG is one. It's a house of brands, right? I think the difference in my mind is: Are you digital first? Hmm. Right. I mean, our our DNA and and the way we have sort of created this is very sort of tech first. I'll give you an example. Um, if you think about pricing, or if you think about growth hacking on a platform, and I'll explain what each of those is, right? If you think about pricing, if you have ten thousand SKUs, right? You can't price them one at a time. You have to price them using tech and analytics. And we build that from the scratch when we started uh, Mensa because a lot of us have heritage in e-commerce and therefore build out tech and product, right? So I think digital first is the differentiator. I think it's a house of brands play. That's right. By the way, now we've started incubating. So Villain, we bought us a fragments brand. We have launched personal care. Now is that aggregation and roll-up or is that incubation? Look, and does it really matter? It these no, are all mind, interesting strands and I definitely do yeah. want to get into it at later sure, on in sure. the conversation. But for now, I just want to take us back to understanding Mensa. Uh, you did something incredible. You said that you had a revenue run rate of 1,500 crores within That's just right. the first 12 months. That's right. 
I'm assuming a lot of this revenue or almost all of this revenue was from the brands that you acquired and yes. which became part of yes. the Mensa's table, right? Yeah. And you've raised, what, about 180-odd million dollars in venture capital? 200 million in equity. 200 million in yep. equity. And you've raised a bunch of money in debt. 100 million in debt. 100 million in debt. So yep. that's over 300 million dollars. Yep. You're a unicorn. Yes. Now, I mean, all of this is very interesting because... It's like we haven't seen this before. Sure, I mean, like, you know, other there are rivals to you, but I'm saying that the business model which you're operating in, which is, it kind of upends the way we thought about how businesses should be built, how venture-funded businesses are built. Right. You're also profitable, yes. if I'm not mistaken, yes. right? So your business model is, you go to venture capitalists and you say, give us money, so we can go and acquire profitable businesses and you do that and you acquire a bunch of them. They give you a bunch of revenue, profitable revenue. And then you go to venture capitalists and say, look, we've done this. Give us more money and we'll do that more. It almost feels like, wait, where's the catch? I think the catch, by the way, is one thing that you're missing, which is if you think about a 1500 crore revenue run rate, the question is, what is the revenue we bought versus what is the revenue that we grew, right? That number, by the way, is 60-40. Uh, and that number will overall become 50-50 over time, right? Is so there the a real, name for this metric internally? The, it's, it's grown revenue versus bought revenue, right? So the Bought reality, revenue being if a company you bought so was let's at 100 say, by crore. the way, when we bought it at 30 crores and that company is now doing 200 crores, 30 crores is the bought revenue, 170 crores is the grown revenue, right? So the real alpha in this is actually two parts. The first is, are you able to identify good brands with great consumer love, which you believe that you can grow faster than when you acquired them, right? And at the same level of profitability. That's one question. And it's actually a real skill because it's hard to shift through all of them and actually make sure that you buy the right brands to get it right more times than you get it wrong. The second and perhaps the more important part of the overall journey is, once you get the brand into the Mensa portfolio, how do you create real alpha of growth and over time improve profitability? Not just current profitability, but getting to be better. I'll give you an example. I'm wearing today a Dennis Lingo shirt, which is one of my favorite brands. It's a, you go search for men's casual shirts anywhere on Amazon, Flipkart, Mintra, Nika, anywhere. Apart from the couple of sponsored ads, Dennis Lingo will always be on top. Now that didn't happen by chance. That happened through actual real work on product is the physical product. Wait, I can't tell. Are you now shilling for one of your own brands? Is this one of your own brands? It is, but okay. I want to tell you a little bit about what is different, right? All in right. terms of why this is the case, right? The, the alpha that you create is this growth hacking. So the brand that we originally bought was doing shirts and it was relatively small, right? The brand that is now in place one year little over one year later, right? I mean, we're now 17 months old. So a little over one year later is the following. It's become now a men's casual brand. So it no longer has shirts. It has now shirts, t-shirts, trousers, blah, blah, blah. We've extended categories. Second, it's grown 5x from where it was in size, right? Because we have done growth hacking. We've been able to sort of understand algorithms of Amazon, Mintra, blah, blah, blah. So why do people invest in us? Is because we're able to add alpha to the brands, right? By either accelerating growth, or improving profitability, or ideally both. That's the goal of it, and that's hard to do, right? The reason investors get excited 
about Mensa is actually because we add alpha to the brands, not because we go buy the brands. Obviously, if, they, if you buy bad brands, it's very hard to do. So hopefully we've partnered with some fantastic brands, 20 plus brands now. But the real value is actually scale up, which is what I was telling you earlier, which I think most single small entrepreneurial companies find it very hard to do. And that's where we come in. Help us understand that. Help us understand one of these brands because I think a lot of our conversation till now has been to some level abstract because we're talking about brands and all that. Yeah. Take an example of one of these brands. Who are the people who run it? What scaling, like, you know, how do they end up starting? I'm assuming most of them started with no venture capital and correct, correct, funding, correct, right? Correct. So and, give, and where do they get stuck? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. Um, I'll stick with, I'll, cre- I'll, I'll use a brand called Villain. Villain is a fragrance brand. It started by uh, two guys in Ahmedabad. Um, and essentially, they grew it to, call it a 10, 12, 14 crore brand. It was one of our early acquisitions. Today, it's trending at 100 That's crores. about a million and a half dollars. Got it. Right. So now... So how much did you say today? Uh, close to 100 crores, right, in terms of trending. So, so roughly an 8 to 10x growth. Growth in about, call it, again, roughly in the 12-month range. Maybe it's slightly more because it was one of the earlier acquisitions. Maybe it's 13, 14 months. And but if I were to ask you, what was the secret sauce that allowed you to do this? Three what things. Was First, new product introduction. It had only three SKUs. We introduced, by the way, uh, it's fragments primarily, right? So we did a Warner Brother collaboration and we created something called the Joker Pack. Villain is villain. And so we created the Joker Pack. We have launched personal care. We launched a very cool revolver pack, right? Which is an interesting model. It looks like a revolver, villain, et cetera. And, but it's fragments. We've launched personal care. So one is new product launches, which we have the ability to do both because of expertise and capital to be able to do much quicker than what they did. That was number one. Number two is we opened up more channels. It was primarily selling on Amazon and a little bit on Nika. Now it's selling across all channels, including its own D2C, which is its own set of skill sets, right? And that's the second thing we actually did. The third is we've taken it, by the way, a little bit global. So we've taken it to the Middle East where, you know, we have an Oud perfume that does quite well, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, fourth is we've invested heavily in brand building. You know, we've got Hardik Pandya, we've got Yash, all of these. So these are all things that are hard to do for a small single entrepreneur. Much easier to do when you're Mensa, right? And all of these require a combination of expertise, people and capital, which is all the three things that we bring. And that's why Villain has grown as a brand. The reason why you've been able to do all of this and not the original founders or entrepreneurs is because you have access to more capital and resources than they by themselves. I think three things. Otherwise, why wouldn't they do it? I think first is, by the way, uh, uh, great question, Rohan. The first is, I think it's very hard as a single entrepreneur to attract great talent. Right? The people I get, when when we put up a LinkedIn post on performance marketing, we had 20 open roles. We had 800 applications. So the ability to attract talent, which is a big, big game changer. People and talent eventually make this. So which that is effectively comes back to scale again. Scale the talent rep- is attracted yes. to scale of scale challenge. Scale of challenge, correct. Scale of challenge. So I think talent is one. Second is expertise, right? It's very hard for a single entrepreneur to go to Warner Brothers and say, I want to do a joint venture, right? I mean, nobody, I mean, it's very hard to do. I mean, technically, can you do it? Easy, but really people don't, right? Likewise, do you think big, right? So do you sort of go and say, I don't want somebody, but I want Hardik Pandya. I mean, each of these, by the way, starts to become quite interesting because, you know, in my mind, individually, they're not such big decisions. But collectively, they start to really build out a brand. So I think it's talent. I think it's expertise. 
and i think it's people these are the three things that i think a single entrepreneur finds very hard to do got it if i were to ask you to explain to us simply how do you make money as a company i understand that you're acquiring profitable companies sure. and when it rolls up they still is that how you no, make no, money no i mean uh, how do you make money how so, does i mean uh, so what do we need to do right to be profitable at the mensa level we need to have the continued profitability of these brands while investing back in brand building which is more expensive than what they did before and we have corporate costs because we have a tech layer we have an ops layer so the amount of money that you make has to be more than the cost of the corporate cost more than the ex- the brand building cost etc and how do we get there we basically grow faster at the same percentage of profitability right and therefore you're able to therefore cover more plow back right? in you plow some. back the extra money into brand building and investment the second is there are some effectiveness and efficiencies that happen when you have multiple brands i'll give you one simple example we have 20 brands you don't need 20 warehouses you need four to cover all of india and by the way the cost per unit of shipping goes down when you have four warehouses you're able to automate a little bit more you're able to negotiate better with the third party delivery supplier this right? this is where i kind of come back to our earlier conversation about let's say unilever or procter and gamble yep. i mean whatever you're describing yes. is literally what they do yes. they have lots of brands yes. they have common warehouses yes. they have common distribution they yes. have common marketing yes. they have central corporate assets yes. know how technology scale etc right, right? you're just doing it from the ground up instead of from the top down that these large companies That's typically correct. do and by the way if you go back in history they all started the same way i think they all rolled up bunch, multiple brands i'll tell you the slight difference between unilever or any of the or png and us um the warehousing part is similar right all of that is similar what's different is we have one central piece on performance marketing we have one central piece on growth hacking because performance marketing whether you do google or facebook is a skill that can go across all brands you optimize on some keywords right it doesn't matter whether that keyword is fragments or or trousers right so that skill is different it's like having distribution right the second skill that's very different sorry you said this is how we're different by implication you're saying that typically in larger consumer organizations like unilever or png these are broken down into business brand business units and it's done and at it's the level also of- by the way when you're 90% offline 95% offline it's not the most important thing for you to do the second which i keep referring to as growth hacking right is in an offline world what matters is placement and shelf space in the online world what matters is the first four swipes on a mobile phone the question is how do you go up on that without paying for it right which means by the way having a deep understanding of what is the algorithm for each of your distribution channels whether it's an amazon amazon for example values a lot on never being out of stock values a lot on speed of delivery mintra which is a little bit more fashion sense uh, uh, specific basically says you need freshness which is what are the number of new sku's that you put in your brand right so that people see newer and newer things So once you understand these algorithms you can tailor your inventory and you can tailor what you do for each of these so that you go up on the ranks and you get better and better shelf space that you don't pay for now the three four skills that i described to you are not classic skills that are uh, an fmcg company which has more offline than online would do right so this is the new age version and the new age digital version of building the same house of brands that we're talking about i think that's the difference in many ways right or 
Sorry, I must button here to ask you. Yeah. Uh, per my research, the last numbers that I saw for your company was said you were seven hundred odd employees and hoping yes. to add another seven hundred odd this year. So right now, how many employees are you? Thousand. Thousand employees. And what's like you know, if you were to kind of draw out a pie chart of how yeah. broadly the top four or five categories how yeah, they yeah. split, what are they? No, the first would be actually brand managers and brand teams, which is essentially people who sort of look at the PNL of the brand. make sure that all of the stuff that needs to happen happens which is cataloging uploading prices there's a whole bunch of things even in the online world to be able to do right so that's a large chunk the second would actually be technology which is our central tech team that's building the platform how large is your tech team it's now close to north of 50 people uh, i think 40 to 50 people across multiple offices and uh, you build your own stack are you we like- build our own stack we build our own stack so for example we I mean a simple thing like so today I know on my mobile phone my daily sales by the hour across call it seven or eight main distribution channels in 20 brands now that may seem very easy but it's actually very hard to do because you need deep api integration deep tech integration just to keep the language simple across all of the platforms and us right so we have a tech team we have a big ops team we have a brand team right um we have by the way an m&a team is relatively small it's only you're not referring set. to your three daughters no nah, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but th- that's the unpaid mna team is actually a regular mna team as well so all it's of these come together incentive. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly incentives need to be higher incentives do need to be higher right you would never attract an investment banker by offering them 100 yeah yeah i mean maybe they'll learn that lesson <laughs> so i mean those are the kinds of people that we have rohin right and i think it's um i i'm very i mean i think you were asking what's the difference between a small company and a relatively larger what's different right a lot of it is the quality of the talent if you get the right quality of talent magic happens right and i think uh, i think we've been very fortunate i think we've we have a terrific team in addition to the 200 million dollars that you've raised in equity you've also raised half of that in debt yes would i be correct in assuming that the reason you're able to kind of raise so much debt yes is because you've got cash flows on the other side which That's are coming right. from the brands that you're acquiring so it's easy for you to deploy that cost because normally a startup that has just raised 200 million dollars in venture funding goes for debt and they'll be like what do you need this yeah, debt yeah, for yeah yeah no no i mean look i mean long term i think uh, you know this is now my third venture um apart from mckinsey oh, we'll call get it back to that yeah right? um, are you calling mckinsey a venture <laughs> mckinsey is not a venture but mckinsey was a lot of my i mean i i learned a lot fourth you're leaving out one in the middle Yeah, yeah, no, no. I I only counted the three of oh, got it. Uh, Mintra, Medlife, and now Mensa. I didn't got count it. McKinsey. So I think these were the three. But my belief is, look, long term for a company to, I want to build this for the next fifty years, right? Not me personally, but the company hopefully will last for well beyond that, right? But therefore, for me, actually making sure that we have the right cap table, the right level of ownership for the management team and the founder and so on is important because you have consistency of direction. So the goal is not to raise a lot of money. The goal is to be capital efficient, and the goal is to actually build out a great business, right? So it's not about how much money you raise; it's about how effectively you deploy the capital. The reason debt works for us is you have cash flows, like you said, and therefore you can service the debt. Now we're not going to over leverage ourselves. We're not going to add a lot more debt, but I think this ratio with our level of profitability is very sort of sustainable. And long term, by the way, I mean we have banks that are we are talking to. so we would operate like normal indian corporate houses where we would get bank debt right to finance working capital to finance growth etc and and that's what we want to try and do 
So just to kind of stick on to this point a bit sure. more before we move on, you need a large you or any other company that operates in the for want of a better phrase let's call it e-commerce roll up yep needs that initial chunk initial chunk of uh, venture capital yep in order to buy the first set of businesses yes. right because you have no and once you've bought those first set of businesses and are at a certain scale yes then you don't necessarily need venture capital because you can use debt because you are essentially acquiring revenue that's part right. of which profitable revenue part that's of right. which you can use to pay back or continue paying back the debt that's correct and so, i think the only reason we'll raise more capital over time is if we find an asset that's very large or that you know you need capital to buy because the the actual operating of the companies you don't need capital including by the way working capital because it's self sustaining and so on which i think is the beauty of the model and it's hard to do i just want to point out i think it sometimes feels like it's very easy oh you got some venture capital money you know you bought a few brands and you're going and raising venture capital money i'm just paraphrasing your words rohan i think that's not how it works the reality is a lot of the execution and really growing the brands more is really where value gets created and that's a day in day out execution business which is very product and tech led to make it scalable and that's the core of the sort of secret sauce or the black box inside of a mensa right that's why it grows uh, that's why brands grow fast is your raw material therefore the availability of brands that you can acquire and scale up and given that there are others like you who also have raised significant amount of venture funding right and the the set of brands in india is a finite pool and i'm assuming all of you folks are trying to acquire is there a risk that you run out of raw material to grow and like don't think so um i'll i'll just give it a little bit numerically so that every you know so there are 4000 plus brands like i was telling you in the spaces we operate in but a lot of this will be the long long tail which, which is may okay not right if you have great consumer experience and you're in the 10 to 100 crore range i'm okay is that your sweet spot 10 yes. to 100 crore 10 to 100 now 150 but in that sort of range right we are completely okay if it's long tail because we believe we can grow it faster in the end state 5 years 4 years from now I want to have 60 70 80 brands max out of which my sense is 10 to 15 will be power brands which is very similar to what Unilever does etc right there are power brands and then there's everyone else so we're talking and the and and to give you a sense the 40 4000 brands are growing at roughly 25% year on year so every year a thousand new brands get added so we're talking about 60 brands in 5 years by the way out of 7 8000 9000 brands it's very small right and and so i think it's not a winner takes all market there can be many large profitable players this is not one of those cases where there's a big network effect right so the winner takes everything kind of thing i think there can be multiple large businesses that actually flourish and do well and remember the overarching context of this 100 billion plus market in fashion beauty and home 80% is unbranded so what are we really all doing right i think if there are five more of uh e-commerce digital brand builders just to use a slightly different term um that's a mouthful nobody's going to say that no more or no less than e-commerce <laughs> roll ups i think it's your mindset uh i think the the reality for me is i think the more brands that get created the better it is actually because you're actually moving unbranded to branded and therefore the more there are the better there is and i don't think there is as much competition as people make out to be actually out of the 23 now that we've done maybe two were places where we had others in 23 brands that you own right now is that yeah. what you meant yeah 
There are only two where, by the way, there was somebody else in conversation and then people had to choose. But most of it, there was nothing. And the reason is, by the way, people self-select, right? I mean, we're doing lots of fashion. So people who do fashion will come more normally to us. We're doing less of home, right? So, I mean, some of this just plays itself out, right? So it's not competitive. And I think, quite honestly, there can be 10 large players and it still wouldn't be enough. Right? That's, if I were to draw an analogy, yeah. you're saying it's like you have... Uh, Colgate Palmolive, you have a Unilever, you have a Procter and Gamble, you have a Marico, yep. you have an ITC, etc. Yes. That's the equivalent that you're saying in this That's three right. categories. That's right. And I'm saying, uh, look, you know how many brands Unilever has globally? I'm sure you do. Please I tell do. us. <laughs> thousand plus brands. Right? So I think it's, therefore there's just lots and lots and lots of room. Right? Um, you know. What's look, the risk then? The biggest risk is Especially, I, I ask you this yeah. because before coming, I was also researching the space. Yeah. And the original or the first one to kick this off, Thrasio, uh, just underwent a round of layoffs. Right. And like, you know, it, it seems to be not so sure about its plans for India itself. So in many ways, it's like the one that kicked off the model and like, you know, everyone was saying that, hey, it's worth $5 billion, $10 billion, right. and it's going to take over its entry India, etc. Seems to be in a bit of a spot right now. Yeah, and I would again, I'll come back to what the risks are, but I'll come back to actually saying Mensa is not trust you. Of course, I mean, I'm, and I'm, saying, I'm just using you know, that as a and, and data point. I, but, but coming back a little bit, right, because we're trying to build brands, right? In the case of Thrasio, the risks are different. If Amazon goes up and down, you go up and down. Because they joined at the hip. You joined at the hip, Amazon. right, because it's like 95% of your revenue and so, so it's on, about right? diversifying yourself across. So, yes. So I think one is being platform agnostic and making sure that there are many, many, many channels so that you're not dependent on a single channel. I think that's one way to de-risk. What would ways. be your top five platforms? Oh, it will be the usual, right? It'll be Amazon. Uh, it'll be Mintra, AGO, Amazon, Flipkart, Nika, Got I would it. say, would be the top five for us, right? So it's very similar to India e-commerce in some ways. So, um, but going back to risks for our model, not for Thrasio, right? For our model, I think the first is, you know, getting more right than wrong in the brands that we're actually um, buying, which is you should make sure that the brands that you're buying have great consumer experience. You know, you have to get 80, 90% of it right. I think if you get a brand that you've gotten completely wrong, it's very hard to accelerate. I think so that's one risk. And so you, far... You keep saying this, so I'm going to go deeper into what is What is a wrong brand? So what are a, the markers of a wrong a brand? A wrong brand for me, for example, is if you bought too much of a subscale brand. Right? What is that? What um, You know, you have very dominant players. You're like a 1% share. And the pricing power is all with the large guys, right? So we, for example, um, had done a small brand early on called Helia, right? Which we found quite tough to scale up. What, right? what it brand was, in, was this? It was in smart switches and smart homes. It's not a category that we are sort of now doing. But it oh, was tough. It is a horrendous category. It's a tough Thank category. you for bringing this up. Yeah. Because it is impossible to find. I mean, it's like the yes. entire category has been taken over by products imported and rebatched right. from China. That's right. So, I mean, luckily it was a small mistake. So, I think it was okay. Right. So, I think getting that right is important. The second one that I think is very important in my mind is making sure that you are really investing upfront in brand building. Every time we've done it, it's paid huge dividends. So whether it's in Villain, right? When it was relatively small, we got two large celebs and it's now living up to its potential. No, that's right? something which you did. I mean, my question was more in terms of 
uh, and I also go back to something that you said earlier, which was most of the brands that you spoke to, you said they were in talk with no one else. Yes. Now, I find that like you know hard to fathom because I'm assuming there are these. I mean, per traction, there are eleven e-commerce roll-up brands in India, of right. which ten are venture-funded. Right. And so I'm assuming that in these ten, many of which may be smaller than you, but some of which are like you know similar in size, there are teams which are looking at sure. these set of brands that operate. Sure. And they all have some kind of metrics they're looking at. How many products do they have? What are their customer rankings? And they're all making their filters sure. and some are passing through. So my question is, how are you, like in this pool, how is it possible that you're coming across a different unique set of brands and someone else? Are your filters so distinct? I think uh, there are three parts to the answer. The first is, I do think some of our filters are different, which is we look for categories that maybe other people don't play in. And therefore, it becomes less competitive, right? That's one. Uh, it's very hard to make a fashion brand a success. It's one of those things, right? I mean, I, going back again to history, it's just tough to do. Yeah. Right? Uh, the second, uh, I think, is reputation matters. Um, reputation is one of those things. I mean, we haven't spoke. We have spent most of our time on Mensa now, but maybe you know, in a different thing, I would say reputation is the thing that compounds the most in life, not necessarily money and other things, right? So reputation matters here. And the reason is, if people think you're fair and people think you're fast and you sort of stick to what you've told them, out of the 23, seven brands are referrals for us. Seven. Which is existing founders referred new founders and therefore there was nothing. I mean, they just came in and said, That's great. Tell us about these founders. I mean, do they typically end up selling their entire business over to you? In which case, I'll go back to the point that we made about incentives. Yeah. What are their incentives to so stick around? How does it work? Typically, by the way, um, uh, typically, you know, we get majority always, right, so that you have control. But I think of it as partnership. So I think there are two categories. There are some founders who say upfront that they don't want to sort of be with you and they will do a one-year transition. So that's a chunk of founders, right? In the case of Villain, for example, there was a case and it was agreed up front and we're still very good, uh, sort of, we have great relationships with them, but they wanted to always exit, right? In some other cases, there are founders who say, look, I want to partner with you for five years and above, right? And there it's been a wonderful experience, actually, to be honest. I mean, because these are people, one of the things I think we have gotten right in many ways is I think these are people that actually we could have hired into Mensa separately in many ways. They may not be the best, most polished presenters, etc., but they understand business. They understand their brand. And that's worked out very, very well. And there, the incentive is very simple. Um, we agree on the multiples up front. They have to sell to us over a five-year period. But the better the brand does, the more money they will actually make, right? Um, in year so three. So they have five. an incentive for the upside as well. They have an incentive for the upside. All right. Hey there, Bart here again. Quickly coming in to say that if you're enjoying First Principles, please take a moment to rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. This really helps the show reach more people like you. On Apple Podcasts, you can scroll down to the bottom of the show page to find the stars you can use to rate the show. While on Spotify, all you need to do is head over to the show page, tap on the three dots next to the settings icon, and tap on Rate Show. That's all. Thank you. Now, back to the rest of the episode. All right, Anand, let's switch gears. A lot of talk about, and just to rile you, I'm going to say e-commerce roll-ups at yeah. this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's switch to yeah. your uh, personal background and history. Sure. You've ended up as an entrepreneur by what I'd call like a lateral entry. Yes. Well, we get to that. 
tell us about your family history and how do you end up at like you know I first met you while you were CEO at Mintra yes. how do you how do you end up to where you are today um, what's your background so um I did so I grew up in Chennai um you know my father actually used to uh, be the CEO of Hindustan Motors so auto and auto components and all that has always been so I joined McKinsey and did 15 years of automotive work right in China in the US and in India so nothing to do with fashion product your dad must have been very proud of you yeah yeah he loved the fact he couldn't understand why i did mintra by the way he just could not understand why people would move from mckinsey to mintra but um south indian parents yes yeah, south indian parents right so i did 15 years in consulting i started as a business analyst in mckinsey and i left as a senior partner um you know was in the us how did you first. end up in mintra uh mintra was completely by chance so it's very interesting story um i met sachin and bini at an event and i met mukesh because somebody from mckinsey who i was a mentor to went and joined mukesh right and i was wondering what is this company why have they joined this company right um and then when i met them um i really got along with sachin bini and mukesh right all three of them i thought they were very very different from each other and very very interesting right people sachin um, and bini bansal being the founders of flipkart sachin and, and mukesh being the founder being and, the founder and mukesh being the founder of mintra um and you know nothing actually happened about a year later i think mukesh moved on to run a part of flipkart i think right and therefore they were looking for someone to come run mintra and so we got back together again and i think it actually was a very short conversation right and um would you not think 15 years in yeah, so auto and me, then you the moved way, to fashion yeah, i mean in fact what's... by the way the the interesting story and i've told i think bini this is i think i bought a smartphone shortly before their meeting so that i could download the flipkart app um but uh, it, and and fast forward to today and you're telling us yeah. about performance marketing no, and no, growth so hacking look and... i mean i think uh, you know one of my biggest lessons i think from mckinsey i think one of the things that you learn there are many things that don't work so i'll talk a little bit about it but the one thing that you learn is learnability which i think is one of the most important skills in life which is you get put in different situations can you come up to speed fast on them and can you actually add value right so so i you know i think most people in mckinsey as well were quite surprised that i did it i'll tell you why i did mintra for me it seemed Point like a very good choice joined mintra as ceo yeah yeah i was actually i'm a big 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 believer in where to play where to play is 80% of the answer compared to how to play right and the choosing your battle choosing the battle because i think you know all battles are equally difficult you choose the battle where you have the greatest chance of winning and here it was very simple for me I always felt e-commerce was here to stay because physical retail in India is underpenetrated all the usual reasons. But what was interesting for me is I thought fashion was the right play, right? Because fashion is a business with 70% margins. gross margin. That's exactly right. High gross margin, large market, and not enough brands. So I felt like this is a good place to play. So I actually made the decision quite simply. That was one. The other dimension was I think for me I like the people. Right? I actually met Sachin Bini and Mukesh, but I also met Subrata of Axa who's actually now on my board and continues to be an investor and all that and I met Lee of Tiger and all of these guys I really liked and I felt like you could make a difference and I think Mintra turned out to be one of the my best transitions ever because I really enjoyed it I think you know in times people actually I mean you don't remember the numbers you don't remember the results over a period of time but what you remember is the journey right and I really enjoyed the journey I think it was a great set of people I learned a lot in the process right the business itself did well but it was also a fun experience right and that's what sort of converted me into this sort of going from um and, and i mean just to continue that story yeah. i guess right how long were you at mintra about 3 and 1/2 years 
which is a long time in an e-commerce company. <laughs> I think um, so. I did that. Then I did about. Uh, then the MedLife one was a little bit more calculated. Turned out to be actually. That's when we met when you were. Yeah, between the between Mintra and MedLife, I think, right? That's so right. I think. Uh, look, I mean, for me, um, MedLife was a calculated bet, but I really learned the value of cash flow, money, etc. There, right? What so was I invested. MedLife? MedLife is an e-pharmacy business. Uh, so I had, you know, I you know Walmart acquired us. I, by the way, it was a terrific sort of outcome for everybody. Um, I decided I wanted to be more of an entrepreneur. So uh, MedLife was an unfunded company. All the capital had been put in by the two founders, Prashant and Tushar. Uh, there was no external investor. The third external investor was me, right? So I put in money. I bought ten percent of the business. It's a loss-making business. Very different experience when you actually have your own money get burnt. Um, uh, for us, I think we went through some tough times. I think it was my best learning experience, I would say, um, because you know you understand the value of cash flows and managing without external funding. We also got the other humbling thing. Actually, is a lot of outcomes depend on luck, which is you know most people think you you don't acknowledge it. But for me, I mean, frankly, MedLife could have gone anyway, right? I mean, I joined, I worked equally hard as I did in Mintra and MedLife. We went through some very difficult times, but you know. covid actually helped us in many businesses covid actually was the opposite right here covid really helped right because you know demand just skyrocketed and i think then we got very lucky because consolidation was happening if you remember netmeds got yes. bought by alliance and we got bought by farmeasy which i think was i think a very good outcome for farmeasy and for us um and it's turned out to be great i mean i think we're now continue to be shareholders at farmeasy and i think the farmeasy team is an outstanding team and is doing great stuff right so but The two lessons is cash flows matter, right? And second is luck actually matters, right? So I think I did that. Post that, to be honest, and, and there was what about a year and a half, year and a half. And post that, I actually was unclear what I wanted to do. I mean, I think you know, fortunate that I think both were okay outcomes and so on. But I think the the question was, what do I want to do with my life, right? Do I want to be an investor? Do I want to be an operator? Do I want to go be CEO, etc. And I had a great conversation actually with Subrata. of axa um and and then consequently many of my other investors which is nirain of norwest and falcon edge uh, with navros etc but but the defining conversation was me was and 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 actually by the way the other person i had this with was nandan actually of infosys right uh, who's a mentor and so on so they said why would you not try i mean i was you know it, it was what 44 right uh, 43 and i said but you know is it too late to start and the answer was no right you should just start um and if you're passionate about an idea and i think that really sort of triggered this and i felt like and then again since you brought up e-commerce rollups and thrasio so many well, times thank you you're um, not repeating uh, i uh, i want to sort of point out why the delta and why that wasn't the intent the intent was could you create really a tech led set of brands that work in the e-commerce world and the d2c world very very differently could you build out the operating system that's how the idea started and i think uh it's it's taken on a life of its own but i'm enjoying it i think um how long know, did it take you to turn unicorn you know firstly i hit the word unicorn unicorn uh, is a mythical animal you just got to accept it uh, it's a mythical it's animal dinosaurs in. on the other hand lasted for many hundreds <laughs> of millions of years uh so i'd like to see would you rather build... we call it a dinosaur i wouldn't mind i think they lasted for a long time and dominated many spaces um so uh about 6 months um but I would say, look. I mean, we're building a large, profitable business. I still think there's a long way to go. I don't think much about valuations. I do think a lot about building and growth. Um, 
and we have a long, 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 long way to go. I think we're just starting. Many of our brands are breaking out, but they're still very early. Do you think education matters? Did it make any difference to where you are today? Ah, uh, I think. Or in a parallel universe, I don't think it did. Um, I think the ability to be ability to learn maybe did. So I did engineering. So I did uh, mechanical engineering and operations research. Right. Um, do I use any of the actual skills? No. But I think what mattered in education was one, the ability to learn a new topic. I think that carries through. Uh, I think so without second, education, how do you inculcate that? How do you develop uh, it? By, by the way, I think eighty um, percent um, of education, or the content of the education, can now be done much more effectively and efficiently. Right? I mean, look, my kids take Coursera courses. Right? I mean, it's very easy to do, um, and you can learn the content of it. But what you can't learn, I think, a little bit if you don't go to a formal education, is uh, I think interacting with your peers. I think the community, right, and all of that, I think, becomes harder without a formal education. All of that was or is education, higher education, right? Yeah. It's so like, I think, growing to that extent, I do think, by the way, having a structured experience, a college a community, education, college experience actually does matter, right? I think at least I learned a lot from it. I went to Michigan for grad school, and I think it was a great experience. What advice would you give to a younger yourself that might perhaps enable that younger Anant to get to where you are today, but faster? Could there be anything else that that person would have done? Yeah, I think one is taking more risks. Um, you know, look, um, uh, McKinsey was a fantastic place, but it was relatively a. It was a. It was a linear line, right? I mean, you know, you you knew what you had to do. It was a hardworking place. But you were not risk uh, oriented, so I would say the advice would be to take more risk early, because I think you know, frankly, um, if it pays off, great. If it doesn't pay off, it doesn't do any long term damage. So doing that would be one one advice I would give people. All right, I'm now keeping my answer short. By the way, since you're <laughs> how do you? What does your typical week or day look like? How do you budget for it? What percentage of it is calendared? What percentage of it is unstructured? So I'm an early morning person. So I wake up. Define by, early morning. I wake up between four and four thirty. Um, I don't do any real sort of electronic work till maybe six thirty in the morning. Um, I do a little bit of meditation. I write down notes on things that I think I need to do, etc. With pen and paper. With pen and paper. Um, so uh, I think that helps me. It helps for me. It's an easy way to focus and so on. Uh, I would say sixty percent of my days is is quite calendared. Uh, the remaining, there's always some issue or the other, so I leave open slots in my calendar for either people issues, some crisis that happens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I I'm uh, I'm a big believer in managing energy, not time, and I think they're two very different things. Help us understand that. Um, some activities give you energy. For me, by the way, problem solving on a new area gives me energy. Sitting through a review takes away a little bit of energy. Um, so what I try and do is I try and do a lot of my problem-solving, decision-oriented meetings in the morning when I have better energy and higher energy and so on. And I do a little bit more of the things uh, which take away a bit of my energy, sort of sprinkle through the day. So and should we commiserate with those who have to do review presentations with you so. in the second half? I think so. I think you should. You should. You should. Um, so I think that's how I sort of calendar my day. I, I don't... I mean, I go to sleep by 10.30, 10, 10.30. So, right. um, yeah. And I spend, a, I mean, 
I try not to do anything between eight and nine in the evening. So I'm with my kids and family and so on. So I I block that out. What makes you get up? I mean, especially maybe we might go back to your time at MedLife or otherwise also. Like, what makes you get up after you take on hard knocks? One is I I, I yeah. Sorry, it's a great I question. I can se- I can sense that you're uncomfortable yeah. because every time I've met you, yeah, you've always come across as yeah. You know, you're on your feet. You've got the answers. No, and stuff I, I like don't that. think so. I don't think I have the answer for everything. I think the first is um uh you know a little bit of this is just how you grow up, right? So I I'm sort of. You know, I don't like giving up so easily. I think that Where does that come from? I think maybe my parents. I think they were very sort of, you know, hard working. Sort of my father came from Dindigul and you know studied in a Tamil medium school and sort of came up the hard way, right? And I think that made a big difference, right? I think he sort of never gave up. I mean, he could have given 100. He couldn't speak English till 11th grade, right? And he sort of was in railways and then worked his way up and so on, right? So I I don't believe in giving up so easily. So I think that's one thing that keeps me going the second is uh, rohin to be honest i get very excited by possibilities right i mean about like for me i mean once i get enthusiastic about it i i i sort of uh, you know it doesn't matter what the near term pain that you have to go through is if you feel like there's something very interesting right in the end that you can build for me even in the medlife days when we were going through tough times it just felt like telehealth was here to stay right and and sort of you were really genuinely improving things so you know you sort of i think and and a bit of a longer term view to what you're building i think makes you sort of helps you ride through the tough spots the third thing that makes me get up after knocks quite honestly is my family i think um you know sandhya my wife and the kids all by the way are hugely supportive and i think that really helps because i mean when you're I, I, no life is a straight journey, right? I think startup life, everybody thinks only about the good things. I mean, you asked about the unicorn, but the reality is, uh, I think the day in and day out is very hard, uh, and I think it's a tough job, and it's a uh, it's it takes a lot out of you emotionally, it takes a lot out of you physically, and I think therefore having a bit of a supportive family helps. I think these may be the three things. Let's go a little bit more into the emotional part, because that's one of the things that doesn't get talked about a lot. Yeah. Why does it take a toll on you emotionally? Ah, uh, the first, Rohit, is I think you're alone. I mean, you can't share your fears, your anxieties. Um, certainly with the chem. Um, I'm just joking, but I think you can't share it with your investors. Uh, you can't share it with even your top team in many ways, right? Because you know, you a lot of the startup is about creating. I mean it's about impossible odds. I mean if you look at any stats it's impossible odds, right? And therefore it's very lonely and that builds up in terms of stress, right? You don't have somebody to talk to. Uh you don't have somebody that you can actually really What do you do about that? I uh, I by the way talk to Sandeep. I talk to my wife and I think that it becomes uh much easier because I mean it's one of those people I have full trust and I can actually have the conversation and I think you need just a non-judgmental listener you don't really need anybody to solve your problems right? and someone who will also call out bullshit when and someone who calls out bullshit so I think that really helps I think so that's one reason I think for the stress I think the second which I think is partly media driven and partly your own is the need to sort of appear successful all the time and I think it's complete bullshit right I mean the reality is there's not a single founder that i met incidentally i met 752 founders in the last 16 months i keep count i like have notes about that. not one not one has gone through only good times right 
But yet, if you go look at social media posts, you look at any of our posts, including mine probably, right? You only see the positives. You don't see the negatives because you don't want to portray it. I think these are the two things that I think add up to stress. And I think I've become better at it now in the last in Mensa because I, I think going through a couple of cycles really, really helps, right? At some level, it doesn't matter, right? And I think that that mindset shift, I think takes a lot of effort to get to. How does this emotional baggage or stress weigh as you go lower down the organization uh, for the average employee who may also be like, you know, stressed and wondering about the future and yeah. if the economy is slowing, etc. and stuff like that. What do you do as CEO? So How I, do you handle that? The part? first is communicate. I, I, it seems very basic, but, you know, I think lots and lots and lots of communication around the good, the bad, what's going on, I think is helpful because most times when people don't know, they imagine things that are much worse than they actually are. So one of the things I do even today it's whatever, as I said, been 17 months, right? Every week, I send out a top of mind message to the entire team saying, here's what I'm going through. Here are the priorities that I think there are, et cetera, right? I think just this constant flow of communication helps because you know the good, you know the bad, you know, so that's one thing that I think helps. The second, I think, Rohin, is actually having a bit of fun at work, right? I mean, unfortunately, you know, we all, I mean, not unfortunately, I think we all work hard. It's a fact. But I think making sure you take a little bit of time out whether it's once a month, whether it's once a quarter, whether it's once a week, depending on who you are. And and just going out and hanging out and getting a drink together makes a huge difference. Right? So we do that quite religiously. And I think that's helped. Right? It's not like Mensa doesn't go through stress. Of course, we all do. But I think these two things, at least for me, have helped a lot. And I think it helps people across all levels of the organization. Transparency and communication and making sure you're fun. You're also part of... A bunch of other organizations. Yes. Uh, you're an independent director on Marico's board. Um, you're part of Champions for Change. Yep. Uh, you're also on the board of Argem. Um, yes. Rohini Nilekani's um, yes. uh, non-profit. And Live, Love, Laugh. That's right. Well, like, and um, That's right. Deepika Padubon's uh, Live, yep. Love, Laugh Foundation, right? Yep. Where is all this coming from? Because I, I can sense, like, you know, I could easily present an alternate, this thing where you're running this incredibly stressful and large and fast-growing organization and you're like, like you said, like, you know, pick the battles that you can win and like, right. I don't have the time to do all these other things and yet you're choosing to, why, where is this coming from? Um, I think uh, from different sources, so I'll sort of, uh, I but, but the common theme uh, is, I think it's good to have interests outside of work. By the way, one thing that doesn't show up in all of this is I'm a big wine guy. Right? I collect wine. That's I know a lot about wine. Yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Uh, so, uh, While so, talking about things which doesn't show up there, there's yeah. also I wanted to bring up that you were in 2014 featured as one of India's hottest 40 <laughs> under 40. I want to know what your wife had to say about that. I think she thought it was true. <laughs> no, no. Uh, you know, so, uh, uh, but back to your earlier question, right? Uh, so mental health is something that I'm deeply passionate about. I believe uh, it's Why? impacted many people in my family. Hmm. Um, uh, it impacts a lot of adolescents, and I have kids who are in that age. Um, and, you know, without going into a lot of detail, a very close family of mine has been impacted and so on, right? So I passionately believe that you need to do something about it. In India, it's like a complete taboo subject to talk about. Has it not health. changed today, with, especially with startups and like, especially in Bangalore? I think it's changing. I think there needs to be a lot more that's done. 
So the reason I sort of did this live, love, laugh is essentially to say there's some way to give back, right? And I think the work that's being done is fantastic. I think on adolescent mental health, on rural mental health, on doctor programs, which is again very interesting. Most MBBS doctors don't know enough to actually be able to help on mental health issues or even identify them. So we do a bunch of stuff, and I feel like it's a way of giving back, right? I think that's that's why I do it, right? And I think. Both the non-profits that I've I've been involved in, Arigiam on Water and Mental Health, are things that I are things that I believe we can make a difference in. And I think it's with people that I believe are trying to make a big difference. And therefore, in any way, if I can help, it accelerates. So that's why I do it. Right. Um, on the topic of mental health, yeah, I do agree with you that it's a significant, I think, uh, movement that's that needs to happen. But it's also a significant crisis. The number of young professionals like you know who are going through various levels of like you know issues with like you know uh, mental stress what's your advice to the average like how do you like you know someone at mensa who comes to you and says i'm unable to you know, deal with the, this stress the single biggest single biggest advice i would have is reach out and ask for help or talk to somebody by the way 80% this is like a survey that we did at Live Live Live. 80% of the people never speak about this. That's what actually causes India's like suicide capital, right? And most of it happens below 35. And the reason... What does that mean? Speak to who? Uh, so I think by the way, so you, I mean, in Mensa at least, we have uh, we have at least three or four designated SPOCs, uh, people who are designated to that you can actually call and talk to. We actually pay for therapy um, and so on, right? So I think that's Mensa specific, but... For example, the biggest thing that the Live Love Love Foundation does it is there's a free helpline. You can go to the Live Love. I mean, there are five other organizations who do it as well. But you can go and actually talk to a helpline and you can actually, it's a recorded conversation. You can have a helpline. You can talk to somebody. You can get a therapist, right? So I think reaching out and acknowledging the problem, I would say, is a huge first step, which I think most people don't do. So my advice would be, if you're going through what you think is anxiety, stress, or depression, right? Just reach out and talk to somebody, right? And and there are many, many free public resources that are available in India today, which were not available a year and a half or two years ago. All right, we'll link to some of those in the show notes. I'm going to switch gears for a while yep. and ask you a question. What do you think is your single biggest, if you were to pick one value add, which is your highest value add to Mensa as CEO, energy. what is that? Energy. I think bringing energy. I think, you know, it's tough to push day in and day out, create brands, grow brands, 20 businesses, blah, 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 right? So I think just I bring, hopefully, I mean, if you ask the Mensa people, that's what they'll say. I think it's bringing energy to the table. All right. If we were to dissect Mensa's success thus far and hopefully yep. into the future as well, on the basis of either the philosophies or the principles that it stands by, what would those be? The first, I think, is um, a set of values that we have. I think that's what's causing a lot of it. I think what are thinking big is a value. Frugality is a value as we think about profitability. Frugality is a value. Fair, fast, and founder-friendly is a value. Caring meritocracy is a value, which is we attract great people. It's a meritocracy, but we actually treat them in a caring manner. And by the way, being in the top decile of consumer experience for every one of our brands is a value. So I think these values really make a difference for us. And I feel... It's the glue that binds us. And, you know, if you have 700 people, 1,000 people, it's we all pull in the same direction. I think that's one big thing in my mind in Mensa that works. The second, Rohan, is what I referred to earlier. I think we're in the right way to play. You know, independent of how many values you have, if you're a company 
doing i don't know something in sri lanka today right there's nothing you can do we're in the right market we're in the right macro market of india and we're in the right market of lifestyle which is a large market so the right where to play and a set of values i think these are the two things that i think are working hmm. well for us i'm thinking actually that the right where to play actually belongs in my earlier question to you where i asked you what is the value i mean if i expand that to top two things that you bring yeah you seem to be suggesting that one it's like deciding where mensa right. should play yeah and two when it plays i bring the energy that's, i supply the no, energy no no i think that's a better articulation that's right all right that's right you said you've met 752 founders i'm assuming you've met many many more talented professionals yes including to interview them to join mensa yeah do you have a best kept secret about finding great talented people yes i don't know about a best kept secret but i do have a method to it what is it the method in my mind is a little bit of what mckinsey does i think mckinsey attracts outstanding talent right uh in many ways uh the first is i think you test for culture because i think either you have a culture fit or you don't and there are many ways to test for culture fit right i mean the classic one is the airport test if you're if you're stuck in a 20 hour flight with the person would you enjoy it versus not right i mean you know so there's a culture fit question what do you have a culture fit question for mensa like do you have some questions that you typically ask um i try and find out if they have other interests outside of work right i've try and find out about a little bit about the family i try and i mean you need to know the person as a human being right and i think that makes a huge difference right. to to what this is so that's number one number two is i test for learnability because the problems that you face in mensa will not be the problems you face elsewhere so can you learn something and there are many ways right you throw a problem at them and you find out can they solve the problem so i almost with all my interviews i give them a problem and actually solve the problem alongside them and that really helps tell us about some of the open ended questions that you keep coming back to to spot talented people yeah so the first is i ask them about a road not taken in their past and why they did or did not do it right and i think that's usually quite telling i mean it's interesting so what are you trying to assess for example i try and assess risk risk appetite i try and assess what did they learn from it and are they therefore doing something different from it and i think you get them to talk about their for the self reflection yeah well. it just gets them to reflect a little bit so i think that's been very good for me uh the second question i usually ask is tell me about the one area or the one experience where you think you had the most impact ever right it can be outside of work it can be in work but what did you actually do and i get into a lot of detail on what did they actually do to make that impact happen and there you can get a lot of sense on is this guy trying to sort of climb a corporate ladder is he trying to make an impact how does he work with other people he or she how do they work with other people so these two questions really help all right at mensa what's your span of control how many people report to you eight eight people report um i think between an eight and a 12 is a good number beyond that gets very difficult to actually really spend time and help people um so 8 to 12 all right what have been your biggest learnings from your failed fundraising attempts if at all they've been have there been yeah, of course of course <laughs> yeah yeah uh, uh i mean anybody who says they've never had a failed fundraising <laughs> attempt um uh the first is timing matters right it seems very simple it doesn't matter how good your numbers are or how good your story is if the economy is not doing well or vice versa right uh you know you may not have great numbers but if you got the timing right i think you could raise so i think on the failed fundraisers timing i think matters 
Um, the second, I think, Rohin, for me on the fundraisers, being, I, I think, being able to paint, uh, a bit of this is I call a telescope in one eye and a microscope in the other eye. You have to get this right with most investors. And sometimes I haven't, right? What happens is sometimes you paint a great end state picture, but your current sort of reality doesn't support it. Or your current reality is great, but you're not able to paint a long-term picture. I think getting this balance between five years from now, three years from now, here's how I'll be when I grow up, to what are my current set of numbers and being able to bridge the two. I think if you don't do well, I think what happens is people are not able to make it coherent. So timing and the big picture and current reality, balancing the two out, I think are two things that I haven't done well many times, uh, you know, in terms of fundraise. All right. Do you believe you are replaceable at your company? Do you believe? Today or in the future? You can take. I would say, by the way, for the first. Actually, let me yeah. add to the question, right? Yeah. Do you believe CEOs should be or redundant or replaceable? I think CEOs should be replaceable. I mean, I'm a classic example of it. I would never have done the Mintra role if there was not room for it, right? So I do think you need different CEOs for different stages of the organization because some people have seen scale, some others haven't. And I think it's absolutely okay to bring professionals in who can actually elevate the experience. And I think that's, that should work well. I think the reverse thing is, I think it's very hard to replace a founder early stage in a company. So you have to hit a little bit of escape velocity. Yeah, that's right? my next question. When should founder CEO step back? I think, by the way, uh, there's no time horizon. I do think there is a business stability horizon. I think there is a point when you're creating and there's a point when you're optimizing. Usually you're not the same person for both, right? So I think when you go from creation to optimization, I think getting a professional who's done it before, who's seen it before actually really helps, right? Likewise, by the way, what got you from zero to 250 million won't get you from 250 million to a billion in revenue, right? So again, when you start to think about scale and systems and process, getting somebody different might actually be the right answer. It's a hard thing to do um, and a hard thing to get right. But I think there are, there are now enough uh, people in the startup ecosystem who've done it. All right. By virtue of the fact that you're the one bringing energy to the table, you're the one helping Mensa define which battlefields it must enter and play in, isn't there also a risk that you know, you you have these self-reinforcing bubbles that like, you know, other people are afraid of pricking because that's your thing. And how do you deal with it? Yeah, so I think the first is, look, we have an outstanding founding team at Mensa. So there are many folks uh, who have worked with me in the past. Uh, there are many who haven't, but we have a terrific team. So it's not like a single point of failure. So I think there's a very collective sort of team. In fact, in that caring meritocracy, the value that I spoke about, one of them is an obligation to dissent. We have a value called obligation to dissent. It's a what does that mean? How do you, how do you operationalize so, that? Because I've heard simple, this phrase right? many times. No, no, it's very simple. We basically, uh, we make a bunch of decisions on whether to buy into a company, invest into a company or not, right? It's very easy to actually have someone actually be able to push it who has the loudest voice. So we actually have a process where everybody and the person who's the person working on the deal who's closest to it, actually has the maximum vote on it, right? That could be an analyst on, on the investment team. It can be whoever it is, right? But they, we actually ensure that we hear their voice. And it becomes, if you do it enough times, it becomes almost muscle memory, right? So I think going back, I think one is we have a very strong founding team. 
and the strong founding team is very independent. We fight a lot. We we actually debate every decision, and I think that's a good and a very healthy thing, right? Whether it's a Pavan, whether it's an Aniket, whether it's an Aishwarya, all these folks are people who have sort of very strong points of view on each of their functions, and are not afraid to speak up. And I think you have to create that. Otherwise, I think this bubble thing is very true, especially in our case, where you're making a bunch of irreversible decisions. Once you buy the business, you can't sort of reverse it. Therefore, making sure that we have enough dissent and enough opposing points of view is very important. And we, I think, we've done a decent job in creating that. Right. What are some of the first principles that you typically turn to most often when you're faced with significant decisions? When you're evaluating things ground up, what first principles, like you know, do you rely on? So I think there are two types of decisions. There are reversible and irreversible decisions. So I don't. Sweat Is that much. a lens that you often? I often do it. So I look at a reversible versus an irreversible decision. So, for example, there are many operating decisions. You know, will I get my spring summer twenty three right, and should I make the right inventory bet? I mean, yes, you could get it wrong, but it's not going to it's not going to change my life in any way, right? So there, I sort of don't sweat too much in terms of making the decision. Investing into a business or buying a company, depending on the size of the company, I spend a lot more time on. So I think first is I decide which decision matters, right, in terms of how you do it. The second, in terms of, uh, I I try to sort of do two things. The first is, what if I got this decision right? What's the upside? And the second is, what if you got it right? What's the maximum downside? And sort of putting that down on a piece of paper really helps me, right? So a downside for buying a business at thirty crores is is thirty crores, but the upside could be a hundred and fifty, right? So you know, making that sort of putting that down and sort of uh, that really helps me. The third is I often sleep over a decision, especially for the important decisions. Don't make it like immediately. Take an extra day; it's not going to change it. For the sh- for the ones that don't, that are reversible, you do it fast. Their velocity matters, right? It's a bit of this thinking fast, thinking slow. If you heard of the economy, yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. What are three four buckets that consume eighty percent of your work week? Um. People, uh, hiring great talent. And making sure that the existing set of people are motivated, excited, etc., is one big bucket. Second is thinking through long-term brand strategy and what are we going to introduce as new products. Um, three months, six months from now, takes a bit. Uh, second big bucket. Uh, the third big bucket is actually investment decisions at a week level. So, what am I making? What what what? Which business are we going to invest in? Not invest in, etc. Is the third. Fourth is firefighting, which is you know we've had a great start to the festival season you run out of stock therefore how do you actually make sure you get it so these are the, roughly the four buckets that i spend time on All right what are some of the things that you spend most time on but may not enjoy but still deliver a lot of value to mensa um we already spoke a little bit about it i think you know looking through reasonably detailed operating metrics brand by brand You know, conversion funnels. Uh, you know, click-through rates, etc. is needed. I don't particularly enjoy it, but I do it because I think it adds a lot of value. And I think you need to be in the detail. And I think it sets a example to the rest of the organization that we need to be in the detail in order to make it work. All right. When someone comes to you with a problem or a slip deadline or a shoddy product or even a resignation, how do you decide if you're going to get involved or hold someone else responsible for that? I think uh, it's a tough question. I mean, I don't fully understand. I think if it's the person is reporting to me, it's my responsibility. If it's not, 
what do you always see your sometimes people may just come yeah, to you so and yeah like, so i i sort of deal with it i think okay. uh, all i right. deal with it yeah let's all right what are some of the stock responses that people may hear from you if they come to you with a big hairy problem like pet phrases that you'll use you're asking all these difficult questions man it's very good um i'm usually good at these interviews okay uh, the pet phrase number 1 is break down the problem that goes back to first principles Go, goes back to first principle problem solving break down the problem for me tell me what you think are the component pieces and why they are the component pieces and are there any pieces that are missing so this is like a standard response that i do the second is i ask how soon does the decision need to be made how you know how soon do you need to solve this problem so these are maybe the two stock phrases around what i all right what i ask for there is this phrase about coaching people not the problem yeah what's your views you talked earlier about mental health you talked about yep. caring organization about people etc what's your like you know how do you view coaching people and talent um i think it's a big deal um, how like is there any so method so we for example or, yeah. have uh, i mean we have professional coaches for all you know the top 15 people at men's all of us have coaches and i think it's actually good to get professional coaches is just individual coaches or also team coaching it's both we Got do individual and team coaching i think it makes a huge difference um you know the top 10 people actually have individual coaches that sort of work with them once or twice a month and then you know periodically we actually have some team coaching i i think by the way the biggest thing rohan in my mind is coaching is all about self reflection so it's about asking the right question i therefore having somebody with a little bit of distance really helps because they ask the question which is obvious but you don't actually have the time to think about it all right we talked earlier about your kids tell us about their world view as you see it their world view of me and yeah, i mean like because the, you know you, they're involved in yeah. uh, a lot of what you I, do I, and I, how i'll tell you what i hope i yeah. hope that they see that um you know you need to be sort of hard working positive and optimistic in order to be successful in life i hope they see it i hope they don't think of this that that it comes easy I I think that's one thing I hope that it imbibes in them because I do a lot of my calls at home and I walk up and down and so I think they hear a lot of that. Um and and so sorry uh so the first is I think they should learn and I hope they learn that there's no substitute to sort of hard work and effort right that's that's the point that I was trying to make. Uh I think the second is it's possible to actually prioritize. Right? I mean I haven't missed a single parent teacher meeting. in i think the last 15 years i mean i may have done some by zoom when i was traveling in mckinsey and so on right but yeah. now it's i mean now i do it in person but i haven't missed a single one and so it is possible to actually schedule and manage both so i hope they basically take away the fact that just because you're hard working doesn't mean you need to have a life right so i think i hope they take that away right. switch back again to work what's the one line that your team dreads hearing from you you're not thinking big enough okay Fair enough what are some of the most what are the three most common adjectives people in mensa might use to describe you energetic is out um i'll give you two positives and one not so positive just make this a little honest i think uh the two positives i would say are um in the detail and so understands the real problem uh the second positive i think is just 
you know general optimism um i think the uh, the part that they may say sometimes also i think is unrealistic all right how often do you change your mind and when you do do you find it easy i change my mind actually i'm quite flexible um is that know, is that something that your team members find it hard to come to terms with because i'm assuming you have strong views before you change your mind yeah. and strong views after you change yes. your mind and i think part of it is how you communicate it right i think by the way uh, having a, a, a unchanging view on things in life is very hard and i think it's very hard because we live in a world where there's so much change around you right so i think important to be flexible important to be able to change your mind and important to be able to communicate it well right so i do change my mind and i don't think my teams get confused because i'm communicating it well what's the best way to give you feedback about what you do we actually this is like a again maybe a mckinsey thing rohan right i actually have a monthly feedback for every one of my direct reports so we have a standard format so is it like a one to one one to one feedback so i actually set up with all you know all i mean not just eight i think maybe about 15 people i have regular feedback sessions frequency of once a month or once a quarter but i get i get feedback and we have a standard format for feedback so you have to sort of say uh something developmental you can't just say oh you're great right so i think that part works by the way you know you asked me on the interview thing right that's right actually the interview thing is in one hour you can never find out the biggest thing about actually attracting successful people the biggest thing about getting the right people in your organization is reference checks it's 80% so i do or i do at least five reference checks and i won't get off the phone till they say something developmental about the person because otherwise they're just giving me random stuff all right that's great now normally what happens in many organizations is there is this you've collected this information it now you need to do something with it you've got developmental feedback on yep. a colleague who's joining your organization yep. it only makes sense if you're going to plug it in into a development system how yes. does it work at mensa so we're still developing it rohan could be honest i mean as i said we're 16 17 months in so one of the things i do do is um when i know there are things that the person needs to work on i pair them up with another person who's complementary so for example if there's somebody who's not very good at detail right or numbers for example you sort of pair them up with somebody who actually can so that they work in a complementary manner all right what has parenting taught you about yourself and you're not allowed to you say patience because literally that's the answer that we've got from every guest earlier i was going to say patience um <laughs> curiosity i think one of the lessons that Thank you. that has taught me is curiosity i think if you look at my kids they're so genuinely curious about every thing in the world right and i think you lose some of that as you grow up and i think that's like i think the kids and we have like you know at least for the next 7 8 years we're going to have kids around so i think in the house so i think uh, curiosity would be one big thing right how would you rate your own performance as a ceo and as a parent on a scale of 1 to 10 CEO would be seven. Uh, parent, I think, currently would be closer to eight, eight and a half. Um, I would say, and and the parenting one, I think, goes through phases. I've been at five before, but I think currently it's at an eight, eight and a half. Right. I think my kids would also be right. rating me. The, Are there things that, that you do others might find quirky? Passions, hobbies, interests. Yeah, uh, quirky. Uh, 
So um, one is I, I walk through every call and I walk everywhere. So I now have a Pavlovian response that whenever I get onto any conference call, I start walking. I'm sure that people find it both quirky and annoying, <laughs> both in the office and at home. Uh, but it helps me because I, I get to my 15,000 steps or whatever, right? Because now whenever there's a, there's a call, I start walking. Uh, so I think that's different. Uh, in terms of interest, I have many. Um, as I said, W-I-N-E wine. Um, <laughs> I like art. I used to paint. Um, I haven't taken it up again, but I, but I like art. So there's lots of other interests. All right. If you were locked in a room for 24 hours with no internet or electronic devices, what would you do? 24 hours. I would read a book. For sure. I, What kind of books? Tell us some books that I you've read, read recently. I read, by the way, a book a week. So I read like almost anything. Is that like one of those 52 pro, uh, books a week, a uh, year kind of project? Maybe or? not 52 books. A, I mean, I don't know, but I've been reading for a long time. Got it. I mean, I have a decent library. I, I like read for a What long time. What are your tastes like? Uh, I do like a bunch of nonfiction as well as fiction. So fiction, by the way, uh, what did I read recently? Um, I read one of Salman Rushdie's books recently, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, what non- kind of non-fiction do you read? Non-fiction, I read a bunch of books on psychology, on uh, thinking systems, right? Uh, my favorite book by far is Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, which we talked yeah. about earlier. Uh, Deep Work, which I think is an interesting book. So I read a bunch of books and mm-hmm. I enjoy it. It's, it's a de-stressor for me. I have to read for 20, 30 minutes in the, in the night before I go to sleep. Do you have any, since you talked about systems, do you have any formal methods to essentially retain insights from the books that you read or is it just you just read them and they're all in your head no I, i don't have a formal system i think it's more in my head and i think uh it's it's no fancy fancy cataloging system no fancy cataloging system life is already complicated <laughs> i can't like make everything a system all right on a scale of 1 to 10 how happy are you with your life 14 all right how do you spend your weekends um so we do a couple of things um so uh, uh You know, unfortunately, Saturdays, I do calls and, and so on. So it's more Sunday than the weekend. Um, I'm a big breakfast person. So I try and take one child or the other somewhere. I mean, and I'm into all these. So I've been to Brahmins and Vidyarthi Bhavan and any of these, right? So I do that. Second is Blossom is our favorite bookstore. So we actually, or Higginbottoms, one of the two. So we go hang out there quite a bit or a coffee shop and spend like lots of time together. Um, and then the last is all of us like travel. So I try religiously every year to do at least a few weeks somewhere, anywhere, and maybe two, three, one week trips. So we do lots of travel. It's not weekend, but we do lots of travel. Right. Which morning of the week do you look forward to the most? Monday. Why is that? It's like the whole week is ahead of you. There's so much that one can do. I send out my top of mind. It's always optimistic. All right. What was the last thing that you geeked out totally over? Uh, the uh, I think well I haven't done the iPhone 14 but the iPhone 13 Pro Max which I have I really like it have you upgraded to iOS 16 I have oh, okay. I have okay. right. it's fantastic by the way let me ask you another last question yeah yeah last okay. question absolutely right <laughs> okay yeah. tell us one word that we can call you give us an adjective that we can use to describe Anand Narayanan excitable Uh, something of more substance something of more substance okay ask me the question again tell us one adjective that we can use to describe you Anant Narayanan the person brand builder <laughs> you sneak that in past us <laughs> <laughs> it's 
good. Terrific. All right. But your questions are damn good. Yeah, I actually had to think. I usually don't think much in <laughs> muscle memory, right? Because oh, yeah. pattern recognition, I've seen them. Thank you for making it this far. I am genuinely so glad that you enjoyed this episode and spent so much time with us. If you have some thoughts on what the interview was like or how you want us to do things differently, please write in to us at podcasts at the ken dot com. That's p o d c a s t s at the rate the hyphen k e n dot com. I am Parth Trivedi. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you soon.